Good morning. We are so, so delighted that you have decided to join us this Sabbath as we continue our conversation in, on Revelation. Today, we, we are going to look at this idea of the seal of God and the mark of the beast, but we're going to do it in hopefully a way that is a bit more winsome than maybe you have heard before. As always, I've got my good friend, Joey O, who's extremely happy because the weather in Loma Linda has improved today. And as we close a week of VBS and graduations, we're just delighted to have you with us. And before we start our conversation, I want to invite you to pray with us for God's blessing. Father, we want to thank you so much for being who you are, for loving us, for caring for us, for being a God who sees beyond our inadequacies and says, you are complete because you are in me. We pray that you give us the capacity to look at the world in the same way, for we pray in your name. Amen. Joey, another beautiful, beautiful Sabbath day. Finally, uh, I know you were talking about rain, and then it did rain last week around here, but finally it looks like we're, we're in summer, mid-80s, sunny, sunny skies, and we get to, to talk about the seal of God and the mark of the beast part two. If you didn't like our first uh, show, then uh, which was last week, Sequels are rarely better than the original, <laughs> so um, you can tune off now. But if you don't, if you were interested in the conversation, we'd love to invite you to hang with us for the next couple of minutes as we talk about the seal of God and the mark of the beast. Yeah, and um, it's interesting that we're talking about this in the context of this strange weather that we've been having. It's been cold and then hot. Our June here normally during our VBS week, which was this past week, it's blazing hot usually. And water day is all the kids and even the adults want to get a little wet because it's so hot. This year, it was so cold that, <laughs> no. and yet, um, you know, we're, we're talking about eternal torment and, you know, what does God's vengeance look like? Is God's vengeance, because um, uh, we've been talking about how the lamb's way is so different than than the beast's way. And yet, um, when we talk about the mark of the beast, the seal of God, and what God ultimately will do in the future, that's also something to consider is, will God start to use coercive ways mm. to, to make it? Or, or, is, or is there something in Revelation that we're not understanding? Mm. So I'm excited to explore all these themes and continue our discussion of the mark of the beast and the seal of God yeah. um, with you. Well, Joey, yes, I think that's a great question to get us started. I, I think a, probably a good place to start, right, would be just to, to talk a little bit, just a 30,000-foot view about what, um, what the lesson talked about mm. as far as not only as the mark of the beast, but uh, 1,260 days, times, times, and half a time, taking yeah. some language from the book of Daniel. And so typically the way that the, that Protestants, not just Adventists, mm -hmm. I know it's really easy to, to look at Adventists and say, well, your denomination has singled out another Christian faith tradition and kind of cast them as the villain in the narrative. It's not just Adventists. No. It's uh, a whole slew of Protestant denominations looked at... Um, this idea of when when do these three and a half years start? Now, mm. 
think one of the things that we did is we actually took the numbers literally. And so we started counting. <clears throat> and we started counting from 538, which, as you know, is uh, Emperor Justinian uh, gives over power uh, to to the Pope in Rome as the capital of the empire moves east to Constantinople. And um, that time or that time period ends in 1798 with uh, General Berthier and uh, the Napoleon's army coming and uh, imprisoning Pope Pius VI. And so that's typically um, speaking about kind of this time, uh, how we've interpreted uh, what what are the events that are occurring? Hmm. It, it might do us well, though, to remember that perhaps, and just perhaps if you've been following with us, John doesn't have a particular time frame in mind. Hmm. It, actually, he's using numerology to tell a story. And the story that he's trying to tell is not only a story, as we've said, that's connected to the Old Testament, and there's the reference, hmm. uh, to the time, time, and half a time. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's also uh, trying to connect it to the Gospels. Uh, as Jesus talks about three and a half years in uh, Luke chapter 4. And then you have, uh, and we'll, we'll delve into that, into that reading because I think it's, it's helpful in it to understand. You also, though, have this idea of sevens and kind of how three and a half is half of seven. And so there, there, there might be some extra messaging uh, that, uh, that uh, John is trying to, to share. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's, my 30, that's my attempt at a 30,000 foot view here. Oh, I'm excited. If that's, if that's where we're going, then I am excited to go on this journey with you. So are we going to Luke 4? Yeah, now? let's go to Luke 4 because John sees himself as, as a prophet, right? Yeah. He sees himself in the prophetic tradition. Now, you talked about, and, and you connected, I think, masterfully, Joey, last week, how whatever the beast does, there's a counter, it's a counterfeit to what the lamb is doing. Mm -hmm. And so you talked a little bit about the reign of, of this beast uh, for 1260 days, and then you compared it with the two witnesses who are prophesying for the exact same amount of time. Mm -hmm. And I want just to consider how, how adept John is at making these connections. So uh, Matthew chapter, four, uh, Luke, pardon, chapter four, verse 24, Jesus is speaking. Truly, I tell you, he continued, this is part of Jesus's messianic manifesto, the, ini the initiation of his ministry. He says, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years hmm. and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a the widow of Sarepta in the region of Sidon. Why do I, why do I uh, kind of harp on this particular text? Because nowhere else does it say that do you have this this idea of three and a half years? That's something that Jesus introduces, mm. and he's introducing this this time mm. connected to prophetic ministry. Mm. And so I think what's going on is you have just building on what you were talking a little bit about uh, last week. The, whatever is happening for this period of time is something that is going to happen in direct response 
to this prophetic ministry that John envisions Revelation to be. Revelation as a prophetic call to the people who follow the Lamb. And so the counterpoint is going to be this coercive, manipulative uh, regime that seeks to uh, do away with conscience. Wow, that's that's so fascinating. So John is taking is is taking from Jesus what Jesus sort of sets up. It's almost like a um, a layup that he he puts up there for for John to dunk if you're a basketball player. So Jesus sets up this period of three and a half years in association with um, Elijah and his ministry. So with three and a half years, then. Where, where do you think Jesus got that from? Is that connected to what Daniel, the period that Daniel talked about in his writings? Yeah, yeah that's, that's I think, um, what, what most scholarship uh, would, would land on, particularly Adventist scholarship, which I think has done a great deal. As you know, yeah. Adventists have uh, kind of cornered the market on scholarship in Revelation and Daniel. And what I find fascinating is woven through, and this is, I think, what you miss when you just tell the 30,000 foot view story, which is, hey, it starts in 538, we end in uh, 1798, that's the time it's closed. Yeah. I think what you lose with that is just how beautifully interwoven the story is mm -hmm. from uh, this prophetic ministry that is trying to call Israel back to repentance when Israel has forsaken its role. To Daniel, who is now being asked to be a witness for this for Yahweh in the midst of exile, to Jesus now, who has come to breathe in, not only is he the Messiah, but he's the continuation of this prophetic line, this line of prophets that are, are there in order to call people back to what God is envisioned for them. And then you have that all the way at the end, uh, as John now sees himself uh, as another one in that long list of prophets that are called for to testify for, for God in the midst of really oppressive systems. Mm. If you think of Ahab, uh, oppressive systems. Ahab and Jezebel, oppressive system. Uh, and I think that's why uh, you hear the story in Kings about Naboth's vineyard, just to show you how economically and spiritually oppressive uh, the system becomes Daniel in Babylon, mm. oppressive system, right? Um, and then you have Jesus in the middle of Rome, oppressive system. Now you have uh, John speaking in the middle of another oppressive system. And so I think more than focusing on the time, I think it's calling us to this prophetic act of witnessing in the midst of systems that tend to dehumanize us. Yeah, that, that is fascinating because when we talk about the 1260 days, three and a half years, um, time, time, and half a times, it's usually focusing on the, oppress the, the rule of the oppressive system, right? That during that time, if we're pointing to 538 to 1798, then Christianity at its worst was was an assist, was an oppressive system that was stamping down actually the message of God, right? Um, it's not the first and not the last that has right. done that, right? Um, we Christians or the, we followers of God have not always leaned into the Lamb's way. We've talked about that before. But what's fascinating to me about what you're saying is that um, John, Jesus, and even in back in Daniel, that the focus is not just on the oppressive mm -hmm. system, but the voice that speaks out mm -hmm. against it. And 
Um, you, that's even clearer in, in the book of Revelation, right? I mean, you see that here, even in the book of Luke, which I had not even thought about before. And that's, I, I love that. I love this connection that he, he makes, um, that he is this Elijah who amidst this system, um, is not being listened to and rejected in his, even in his own, in his own town. Um, and, and then you go to John and John talks about these two witnesses who are prophesying for that same period of time. And then he shows the counterfeit. And I think that makes it so much clearer because a lot of times we show the counterfeits first and then we talk about the the, the witness that happens in the midst of that. But he shows the, the two original first. Um, and I, I wonder, I wonder if there's a reason for that. If, if John is trying to remind us that the importance of this time period is not just for the oppressive system to focus on the oppression and be worried about that, but be focused on what do we do when we're in the midst of that kind of oppression? That is exactly right. And I think that's where the na the number matters. Mm -hmm. Those three and a half years, we've I think we've focused on the wrong thing. 1260 days. That's Elijah's ministry, according to Jesus and Luke. That's the length of Jesus's ministry. That's how long the witnesses are going to speak for. And you have uh, this story, right, that the lesson focused on with a woman uh, who is who is going into the wilderness and mm -hmm. and how this woman. And I think the lesson was was clear. And on this, at least I completely concur, is the Christian church. And so I think. Hmm. That it's not about a period of time uh, from which the Pope uh, gets placed in the in the throne of the Holy See until uh, Pope Pius VI is imprisoned. I think the call is for the church to mimic both Elijah and Jesus in their prophetic ministries for as long as that takes. Hmm. And so the 1260 days or the three and a half years, I think, are more about us than they are about, uh, as you were saying, the systems that rule coercively. Wow, that's powerful. Because, I mean, I think all of us would agree, and maybe even some Catholics would agree, that that time period in Christian history was not Christianity mm -hmm. at its best. Right, it was Christianity at some of its worst. Right, that period in in and, but, but focusing just on that sometimes leads us to say, well, that means the Antichrist or the beastly power in the future will be exactly that one denomination that everybody has left, mm -hmm. and yet, and yet what. The Bible, what Revelation seems to lean towards is actually that it's going to be broader than that, mm -hmm. that actually it's going to be the majority of the Christian world that is aligned to that. that I mean, there is a sense that, that there's going to be that these oppressive systems will continue to erupt. And who knows, like you talked about, um, if, if Adventism, if Adventism itself could potentially be a part of that oppressive system. I know we're treading on dangerous waters here, but Adventism as a system is not the people of God, mm. right? The people of God have always been not just tied to a singular system. 
And even, even when God had the people of God as the Israelites, which was a nation, they were the people of God, he did have people who followed him outside of that nation as well, which is clear with the, you know, with Balaam and with um, Abraham. Uh, with uh, uh, Moses, his father-in-law, and all of these things, it's very clear that there were other followers of God outside of that group. So it's not just tied to one system. So the system, and we've said this as Adventists, the system of Adventism will not save us. Being Having our membership in the roles of, Advent, uh, of an Adventist church is not what's going to save us. Just like having your name in the roles of a Catholic church mm-hmm. will not deem right. you lost, Right. So it is not the systems themselves that will save us or or make us lost, but that these systems that, that it points to it it points that throughout history these systems do tend to operate in beastly mm-hmm. ways, and for the people of God to make sure that you are not aligning yourself too strongly with any one system, and instead making sure that you follow God That's and so His way. That is so well said. And I think I'll go I'll go maybe even a step further on the ledge here. Going to church on Saturday doesn't mean that you're sealed by God. Going to church on Sunday doesn't mean that you're sealed by the beast. To look at Sabbath for the Sabbath versus Sunday tradition and to be reductionistic, which I'm sorry to say it this week I had I'll I'll be just candid with you, Joey. I had it was a difficult week to go through the lesson because to be reductionistic and say this is the se- the seal of God leaves out, I think, hmm. 2,000 years of Christian history of people who worshipped on Sabbath and people who worshipped on Sunday who did incredible contribute, who made incredible contributions to the witness of Jesus. Hmm. Um. One of my favorite writers currently is a Catholic priest. His name's Ronald Rollheiser, and Rollheiser writes this book uh, called A Holy Longing. And as much as I love Ellen White and our Adventist writers, um, I try to read a vast uh, array of of books, and I just want to share a story that is in this book that I, I think was so was so moving and just shows you that it's not about the day um, and it's not about the system. Hmm. It's, it's something much, much grander. Roheiser writes, a man who was entirely careless of spiritual affairs died and went to hell. And he was much missed on earth by his old friends. His business agent went down to the gates of hell to see if there was any chance of bringing him back. But though he pleaded for the gates to be opened, the iron bars never yielded. His priest also went and argued. He was not really a bad fellow. Given time, he would have matured. Let him out, please. And the gates remained stubbornly shut against all their voices until his mother came. And she did not beg for his release. Quietly and with a strange catch in her voice, she said to Satan, let me in. Hmm. Immediately, the great door swung open on their hinges. For love, love goes down through the gates of hell, and there it redeems the dead. Hmm. I, when I read this, I read this a couple. I read this book a couple of years. I just the imagery just stayed with me hmm. because this is what Revelation is, hmm. right? 
Uh, revelation is this rescue mission mm. of a God who says, I'm not going to try to plead for the prince of this world to release my children who have signed away their birthright. Mm. I am going to go down into the very depths of hell, um, as the Apostles' Creed knows, mm. because it is there that love can redeem those who are died, those who have died. And so I think that's the broader picture that Revelation keeps pushing us and pushing us and pushing us and pushing us toward. And I would love Adventists, our Adventist church who has just such a comfort with the book and, and has done such wonderful studies and is so passionate about the book to pick up this imagery of the woman and to say, how do we, as the woman, as the bride of Christ, how do we descend into the hells of this world mm. in order to love people because it is only that way in which we can redeem those who died? The Sabbath isn't the seal of God. Loving through and to hell mm. is the seal of God. Wow, I love that. You know, um, and you know, in last week's lesson, what I really appreciate about last week's lesson, there was a, a paragraph, I don't remember exactly, maybe it was on the Sunday one, um, that it wrote that only the only thing that will keep anyone from receiving the mark of the beast is love, mm -hmm. right? And I love that idea, and it, it resonates with what you are saying. And it is the way of the lamb, which is the, we keep on, I mean, if you've been with us, if you've been with us throughout this whole journey through the book of Revelation, you know, we keep coming back to this concept of the contrast between the lamb-like way and the beastly way, right? And the lamb, the way of the lamb is the way of sacrifice, love, and loss. And the way of the beast is power, coercion, and force, right? And those things are always, always at play. And beauty of the book of Revelation, the book, the, even the term revelation means a revealing mm -hmm. of something, the uncovering of something. And the book of the book of Revelation, many scholars have noted that it's, it's almost like it's peeling away the layers so we can see what is really happening behind in the back behind the scenes of, of the world stage, right? To see what forces are actually making things work or not work. And it's a fight between the, the way of the lamb and the way of the beast. And it's, it's peeling back those layers and seeing that. And there are times that even the people of God shout out with frustration, right? After the fifth seal, the, the people of God shout out with frustration. You know, how much longer, how much longer are you going to let the ways of power, coercion, and force continue to abuse us? It's the martyrs crying out, right? Um, symbolically crying out. And, and then you... Uh, so that that is the question and the frustration that you see, the angst that you feel as you go through the book of Revelation, because it seems like the beast has the upper hand. And that's the reality we live in. We live in a society where the way of force, coercion, and power seems to always have the upper hand. And yet, and yet, what Revelation, where, what John masterfully reveals is that despite all that force and power, in the end, it's the lamb-like love that wins. Mm. And that, that if we can, regardless of what, because as we talk about the 1260 days, and I think you've, you've highlighted this so powerfully, well, we're not, we're not saying that 
that 538 to 1798 is necessarily wrong. Right. Right. But what we're saying is that tying it only, that concept of the 1260 days only to that period limits the ways that John and Jesus himself, um, and maybe Daniel used that concept, right? That those periods, that the, the symbolic period of the three and a half years have existed throughout history. There are periods of time where oppression, many a periods of time, where oppression and the way of force seem to have the upper hand. And yet, despite that, there has always been a voice crying out in the wilderness against it. And we need, we need to make sure that during those times of oppression, that we are not a part of the oppressive force and that we are instead that voice crying out against it. That is, that is, I think, to be truly a prophetic movement. Yeah. To be truly a prophetic movement is to be a voice that cries in the wilderness. And it's a voice that cries in the wilderness with confidence, mm -hmm. right? Revelation 12, verse 6 and verse 14, you have the woman being carried away. And in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 14, it says that the woman is going to be protected in the wilderness mm -hmm. for that period of 1260 years. I don't think it's only talking about those saints who decide, who defied a Roman oppression during uh, the abuses of the Christian church in, in Europe and, and beyond. I think it talks about you and me, our community here in Loma Linda. Mm -hmm. We can go out and faithfully be that voice that cries from the wilderness against oppression with the confidence that we are going to be taken care of. Mm. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does oppression look like? Mm. What are what is this thing that we are that we are going to that we are called to rally and cry out against? Mm. I don't think it's the same type of oppression that Jesus faced, or that Daniel faced, or that um, John faced in the book of Revelation, let's face it, the, the time of armies utilizing force to control is passe. Mm. But control, the desire to control one another is as natural to human beings as breathing. Mm. So the question is, how are we being controlled? Mm. What, what tools, what systems out there exist that are trying to control us? The amount of times that a person touches, on average, their phone during the week, during a day, is around uh, 2160. So 2160 times mm -hmm. you go and you, you touch your phone. Mm -hmm. um, wow. When America, uh, this is at the beginning, it seems so long ago, but the, we're talking about maybe uh, 70, 80 years ago. We were, America was having these conversations about blue laws, right? Mm. And some, some places where some, some towns where everything was closed except the church mm. on a Sunday. And while last week we said that we didn't believe that utilizing uh, threats and coercion to get people to church is probably the best methodology, the real reason why things began to open on Sunday, wasn't because people of faith were saying, hey, this is oppressive, let us worship on another day. It wasn't people, it wasn't Christ followers mm -hmm. that called 
for the rollback of blue laws. It was people that were invested in, in capitalism and said, hey, we need to have the marketplace of life, the businesses, open seven days a week. Mm. And so in the 1950s, for example, this, this little... Uh, this little store called 7-Eleven appeared and the the allure of it was it was open seven days a week all the way until 11. And ever since then, what has controlled us isn't a military power. What has controlled us isn't an army posted at the gate. What is persecuting us isn't a secret order of a religious order somewhere making plans and crossing out who the Adventists are, what has controlled us in the past century in our country is this desire to consume more, Joey. Mm. It's to have more and to buy more wow. and, to and to produce more and to attain more and to amass more. And I love Rollheiser because Rollheiser noticing this says uh, something that uh, Dallas Willard also said, the enemy wow. of spirituality is hurry. And we live hurried and harried lives that now have controlled us. That, that old maxim that the things we own end up owning us. That I think wow. is the real mark of the beast. That, and I'm so just disheartened because we don't talk about that. Hmm. We don't talk about that in Adventism. And I think we should, because I think we have this call to be prophetic. Yeah. Wow. That's so powerful. And, you know, it, it is <laughs> in, in chapter 13, Revelation 13, verse 16, and in talking about the mark of the beast, it says that this um, beastly power forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on mm. their right hands or their foreheads so they could not buy or sell mm. unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So there is definitely an economic tie here. And what would we do if, if, um, man, if somebody hit us in our wallets, right? If somebody said that you could not buy or sell, if you could not consume more, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in the, even in the form of a law, it could just be, well, you don't make as much money if you don't consume, if you don't work, if you don't do these things on. And so, yeah, honestly, as, as I look, as I have studied the book of Revelation more and more, um, and the Bible more and more, when it, when it talks about the future and a prophecy about the future, I've become less and less invest, invested in identifying exactly mm. what um, the mark will look like in the future. It could be. It could be a forced day of worship on Sunday. It, it very much could be. I don't know. But what is very clear and what I love how you've brought this out throughout our studies is that there are going to be, although we may not know exactly the form it will take, there are certain identifying marks that that the beastly powers throughout history have used over and over again, that there will be an element of coercion. There will be an element of allegiance, right? And that allegiance doesn't have to be fully like, um, I, I, I love how Sigvi talks about mm -hmm. this, how the mark of the beast is different than the seal of God. The seal of God is only on, on, the, on, on the forehead, but the mark of the beast can be on either the forehead or the hand, which he says, you know, it could be coincidence, but 
if John could also be making the point that you don't necessarily have to assent fully. You don't have to be fully committed to be aligned with the beast. All you have to do is be willing to follow the beastly ways. And there are a lot of people who throughout history didn't absolutely agree with beastly powers, but went along with them anyway, mm. right? And as such, they became a part of the beast, mm. right? I mean, of course, the the most used example is Nazi Germany. There were lots of people who, who said, I hated what Hitler was doing, or I didn't agree with what Hitler was after the fact. But they said, you know, I, I was just a soldier. I was just a, a civilian. I, I was just going along with what the powers told me to do. So, so to be aligned with the beast doesn't mean that we necessarily have to be perfectly bought in with what the beast is willing to do. We're, we can just be afraid of standing up to the beast and we could still be aligned with the beast. But going back to this idea of, um, of what the mark of the beast will be in the future, it does seem like, yes, you don't have to be perfectly aligned. You're just going along with majority. It, it could be coercion. It could be force. It could be, it could be just the popular flow of society and what society is doing. And we're not, we're not pushing back against that. And it will be, it will take courage, sacrifice in order to follow the lamb during that, the, that time. So I'm less, less, um, less convinced, less um, desirous of figuring out exactly what the mark of the beast will be in the future. I'm more concerned with in the present, am I following the lamb? Mm -hmm. Because as you've said time and time again, there's beastly powers and beastly marks and, and seals of God today. Yeah. And that's, that's if you are a church that understands that Revelation is intended to be read as a timely book, you need to be aware of what is happening today. And I think that's another one of the places where we sometimes stumble, mm. that we are constantly reading it as a not yet. Mm. Um, and I think that does two things. I think it does produce this enhanced level of excitement and expectation. Um, our senior pastor calls it eschatological caffeine. Mm. I think it does that. What I also think it, it, it does is it distracts you. Hmm. And I think we've, we have forgotten probably uh, what, what the mystics of old understood well. And that is that the primary tool that Satan utilizes isn't presenting himself as a, you know, this, this being that has horns and a trident and is like, is breathing fire and spitting out fire. Satan is much more nuanced than that. And so the way he's presenting himself, he's presented himself throughout history is through distraction. Mm. He attempts to distract us. And he the best way in which he distracts us is he envelops this beastly ideology under language mm. and with language that sounds really positive. Yes. Babylon was going to mm. conquer the world because Babylon was where people wanted to be. Rome was going to conquer the world because it wanted to bring the world peace. Mm -hmm. The Christian church abused uh, people in Europe and in uh, and indigenous people, uh, particularly in the Americas, because they want they said they wanted them to be saved yeah. from from the fires of hell. And so the 
the packaging looks really good, but at the heart of it mm. is distraction and coercion. Wow. And my question becomes, what things today wow. that are distracting us and that we are giving our attention mm. and our assent to, what are those things? What um, there's, uh, there's an article that, that appeared in the New York uh, Times a few years ago by a, a former uh, programmer for Google who now is referred to as uh, the closest thing that Silicon Valley has as to a conscience. Mm. And what he notes, and I think he's correct, is that technology, art technology, which we said was going to help us, actually now is created in order to exploit us because we are the product. Mm. So we are this this product, and so we create these things, right? That give you these dopamine hits, um, and you're 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 distracted by them. You, it's happened to me. Mm. Um, you jump on social media and you turn around, and you're like, "I just wasted an hour here." <laughs> um, it just it just distracts you, Joey. In the 1960s, it was. The, the U.S. formed a commission to study the future of work in this country. And in the 1960s, the Senate commission said that Americans were going to be working an average of 22 hours a week. Why? Because of all the technology. <laughs> I think that it's obvious that that prediction didn't, that particular <laughs> prophecy didn't come true. But we have more technology than we've ever had. And so the question is, where has where is all this time going? This time that it would take us in the past to do all these laborious tasks, what are we doing with this, with, with that extra time? And the answer, I think, is obvious. We are invested, investing it in becoming and being distracted. Mm. John Mark Comer, which is, uh, who um, wrote a book, fantastic book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, mm -hmm. which if you haven't read it, you need to uh, drop everything you're doing. And that book, I read it maybe two years ago. It was transformational in my life. He says that if you can't sit silently and pray to God and commune to God, you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. the, the enemy has uh, done his task in distracting you. And the good news is Revelation is here to shake you and say, hey, you've got work to do. Hmm. You've got this prophetic message to share. And really, when we go on our phones and we go on YouTube shorts or TikTok videos or Facebook video, what it's actually, what we're training ourselves to do is to crave constant, immediate stimulation, mm -hmm. which is the converse of what what the ruthless elimination of hurry is saying. We're actually training ourselves to constantly be hurried, to have our hearts hurried. And wow, wow. You know, when you think when you talk about distraction, it it reminded me of um a magician. They mm. call him illusionist, right? And magic, at least how it's performed um in in reality, is is all about deception, right? We're just, when we pay to watch a magician, we're paying to be deceived. 
right? We want, we want the, we want the magic to deceive us. But how magicians, they say the key to deception is distraction, right? They have you look over here, focus on this while they're doing something else over here. That is the art of the trick, right? The art of the trick is making sure that the audience never knows exactly where you're going so that they're always focusing on the wrong thing. And what the book of Revelation is clear about is that the beast, the dragon, is the master of deception. Mm -hmm. And maybe what if he is having us focus over here, being so concerned with not being like a certain denomination, mm -hmm. being so concerned with the Sunday law mm. that we're completely missing on, what now. he's doing over here. Not that this stuff isn't important. This may be what he does in the future. Who knows? Because we're dealing with a being that has had way more experience with deception than any single one mm -hmm. of us, right? So who knows where he's headed? The focus shouldn't be trying to figure out where he's trying to lead us because he's probably going to deceive us, right? The focus should be on making sure that our eyes are on the lamb and following the lamb because that's the only way we're going to be able to go where truth is. And when the deception comes, that will be aligned with God and his way. Mm -hmm. If we're practicing and training ourselves today to be followers of the lamb, to not react with force with force, mm -hmm. to force with force, to not use deception as our way of, of, of operating, to not have this hurried heart within us, to have a way of love and sacrifice, to make that the way of our lives so that when when oppression comes, when difficult times comes, we resort to those instincts rather than the way of the beast. That is, that I think is a beautiful, beautiful analogy and a beautiful mental image to understand what's going on. Let's face it, you and I have been Adventists all, all our life. We come from Adventist families. We're tied in the wool Adventists. If the Pope were to meet a bunch of world leaders and say, hey, we are going to come together and everybody needs to go out to church on Sunday, <laughs> we see, we, you and I, you and I, and all of you watching us, we can see that a mile away. Yeah. This week, as I was thinking about it, I started thinking, what are these other things that are wrestling for control and oppressing my soul and oppressing my heart? And ultimately, I realized that it's all these other things that distract us from our primary role, which is to be witnesses to the Lamb. It's really funny, or perhaps it, it should alert us to the fact that maybe we need to read Revelation more carefully, that in uh, the two texts that the lesson chose as the central text in uh, chapter 12, both verse 6 and verse 14, the woman is carried to a wilderness. Hmm. Throughout the book of Revelation, you have cities, you have this, and again, we talk about the dualism, right? The New Jerusalem and Babylon. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that the woman isn't taken to, to either of those. Yeah. The woman is taken to the wilderness because throughout Scripture, the wilderness is a place for spiritual development. Mm. It's, a, it's a space for maturation. It's a space for contemplation. It's a space for reflection. It's a space to walk with God. It's a place to realize that 
The ways of the world are not the ways of the Lamb. We need to spend some more time in the wilderness. Mm. And I think unless we do that, we are going to become distracted, as you so masterfully put it, to what the beast is doing here and now. And maybe the wilderness in our day and age is not necessarily going out to um, the desert somewhere, where, although that may help, but maybe the wilderness is disconnecting from the constant stimulation of our phones or devices of is just creating a fast from all that media um, and saying, that's going to be my period of wilderness, of solitude, of silence, silencing these voices that are constantly, the notifications that are constantly stimulating us. Maybe that is today's wilderness. What good is going to church on Sabbath if for those 24 hours you are a slave to email and social media? and the constant barrage of the news cycle. Oh, I see it. I see it in our church. I see it not only in our church. I see it in myself. Yes. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in my, I, I thought about this this week and it became so clear. Mm. I'm hearing a sermon and there's this other voice calling to me. Mm. Um, and I am being distracted. So perhaps that's an invitation for you and and uh, the rest of our viewers to join us on a fast from all these distractions on a Sabbath. Maybe that that is the true seal of God. Joey, Amen. will you pray for us as we close? Yes. Our good and gracious God, you create us, you fill this world with good things, and then we design things to distract ourselves from you and your way not maybe intentionally, but the end result is that we train our hearts to constantly need the stimulation. And so Lord, help us, help us to break those addictions and to take a step back. And more than that, in our lives, help us to continue to follow you, to follow the Lamb. Whatever the world may be doing, whatever may be popular or happening or coercive in the world around us, help us to have the courage to push back to be that voice shouting in the wilderness, crying in the wilderness, and to listen to your way, the way of the Lamb. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So may you be found by the Lamb, and may you hear it clearly as you foray into the wilderness. Mm -hmm.